Welcome to the Take 92 podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today I am thrilled to welcome someone very important from the scene I grew up in from Portland, Oregon, Tyler King of Berserk. Now, if you were around in the late 90s or early 2000s, you would know Berserk. They toured with AFI, Death by Stereo, played some shows with Propagandi. We're going to talk about all those things and much more. We're even going to play an unreleased song at the end of the episode. Stay tuned for some Northwest history with Berserk. Well, I just spent the morning revisiting the Berserk CDs that I have and going back to those memories. You know, I first saw Berserk in the year 2000 with AFI. I went with my band. We were all in eighth grade. APD? Yeah. It was June 2000. And it was $7 at the door. So this is, this is <laughs> Nitro Records AFI. This is not famous AFI. Maybe very proud of you. No, no. That no, was, it, was, uh, it was black sales. But um, no I, just, black sales. I just thought that was great. Your guy's first record was out at that point. It came out in 99. How long had you guys been together? Because that was my first exposure. So Berserk had many different lineups over the years and also many breakups. Joanne and I, who sang for the band in high school, had a band called Half Wit. That would have been 1996, the one show we played. So I, like Berserk began the night of Half Wit's only show. And uh, Half Wit was Nirvana songs and whole songs basically reworked. Uh, with, <laughs> and then, yeah, like we'd take those riffs and just rearrange them, slap some original lyrics on them, and uh, those were Half Wit songs. Nice. Mandy, who was in Berserk, was there that night. She went to high school with us, or who would end up being in Berserk. She basically came with some guys from a band called National Guard. Did you ever see or hear those guys? Not that I remember. It's funny looking back because they were like uh, legends, you know, in my high school scene and like in the little Portland scene at the time. They went on to to form Backside Disaster, another Portland hardcore band that was pretty awesome back in the day. But uh, yeah, so 1996, I guess, was the very origins of Berserk. And uh, wow. we, we, we released a seven-inch maybe a year into being a band on uh, Recess Records. Everything happened pretty fast for us. We played weekly shows at the Paris Theater, like sort of right off the bat when we had like seven or eight songs. Oh, wow. One of those shows was with a band called FYP. The singer of that band, Todd Conjolier, owned Recess Records. And uh, the night of the Halfwit show, when those... National Guard guys came. They basically were like, she has a cool voice. You're kind of interesting, but your guys' music sucks. <laughs> and yeah, here's a tape. This is punk rock. Listen to this. Play fast. Uh, and uh, start a band with, uh, with, with these guys over here and introduced us to a couple of guys who would make up the first lineup of Berserk with uh, me, Mandy, and Joanne. And uh, the next day, I think we were practicing at my parents' house, like trying to cover FYP songs and AFI songs, Gorilla Biscuits, Minor Threat, whatever was on the tape, we just tried to learn that and rep, you know copy it. Yeah. So yeah, by the time uh, you saw us, I guess maybe three or four years we've been a band. And at the time, you guys were really exciting to me because They After Me, which was the name of the album, was maybe the third hardcore CD that I even owned because oh, wow. I had the Beastie Boys hardcore record, I had Scratch the Surface from Sick of It All, and then... All those nitro bands that sort of had elements of hardcore at the time, you know, AFI, Vandals, Guttermouth, that sort of thing. But seeing you guys, it wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm seeing a, like a female-fronted hardcore band. That's unique. It's like, wow, I'm seeing a hardcore band live. I had never seen that before, you know? And, uh, oh, what a trip. Yeah, so it was, it was really cool thing for me to have like seen you guys there when I'm 14 or whatever, and then couple years later we're doing shows together and sharing the mic doing the backup vocals and shit so that that was a really cool experience for me when i was starting out oh that's awesome it's funny to hear us characterized as a hardcore band i've been thinking a lot like leading up to this the last week or two about those days and like sort of how everything unfolded for berserk we sort of existed in three completely different and sometimes opposing worlds musically yeah we had some uh, straight edge members of the band at times yeah others who drank we would get these shows like with sometimes hardcore straight edge bands and a lot of people thought we were a straight edge band. We, I think we even had some straight edge lyrics, but also we had an existence in like the riot girl scene. Uh, we played with bikini kill Slater Kenny. And then we had some shows where like those two audiences did not get along so well. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, the, you know, the sort of violent, like uh, mosh pit, like hardcore dancing mixed with like a crowd that kind of just wants to dance 
we also were kind of on a grimy pop punk label, but we would play with these hardcore bands and I, yeah, just kind of all over the place. And so I don't know, I don't really know what we are known as. I mean, I guess I can only speak for myself, but that record to me sounds a lot, and I mean this in a good way because I love that record, but it sounds a lot like Shut Your Mouth era AFI. You know, it's got distorted vocals and chunky guitars and fast tempos and all this shit that was more or less new to me, at least in that combination of sounds. You know, at the time, it's blurry to me visually, but I only remember you guys as a four-piece ever. And when I was re-listening, oh, yeah. I looked back and there was actually a second guitarist on that first album. I didn't even remember that. Yeah, so uh, I often, especially early, was extremely sloppy live. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think part of what our charm was... Weren't we, we all? Were, we were definitely best a live band. Our recordings are pretty much just like one-offs live. We didn't do... One, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, and one of the things I admire about you and a lot of people that do recording properly is the amount of time that you put into demoing and getting your equipment dialed in. Yeah. We would just plug and play, man. I'm glad that you say that because I was reflecting on it too and thinking, wow, you guys... I th You know, aside from like Good Riddance, if you would count that, you guys really would have been the first hardcore band that I even saw live. And I had already been in a band playing punk rock for a couple of years. And so when DFS drops off the face of the earth for a while and we're making records and not playing shows, that's mm -hmm. not weird to me. It might be weird for other people that like they exist to play shows and then eventually record those songs. But like... I yeah. started out having only heard CDs, making my own songs before ever playing or even seeing shows, you know? Like, oh, yeah. I was just always caught by the music and, and wanted to write songs, you know? So it's totally opposite how other bands, like, sounds like you guys approached it of like, wow, we've been playing shows, we really need something to give people. Uh, I guess we, <laughs> yeah. better, we better go somewhere and record these songs, you know? We never really had a place to practice in, in like in the in those early days. We would uh, uh, Mandy was going to school down in Eugene at the University of Oregon, and um, Chad, who played drums at the time, and I would pretty much just get together and he would tap on his knees and I would like strum a guitar and we would write some <laughs> riffs like yeah, you know, kind of in the vein of like Ignite or early AFI or Gorilla Biscuits, and then we would uh like record that on a boombox, uh, give a cassette tape to Joanne, say make some vocals, send that cassette tape to Mandy and Eugene. And we get like an offer from, say, if I had opened for them in Portland, it's like, oh, we got to like put these songs together. The girls were always in school. And so it'd be like summertime. OK, we need to like put these songs together. And a lot of times we'd have just a handful of practices in somebody's living room and then take off on the road. And what's really sad is that by the end of those tours, I always felt like we'd come back really tight. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I kind of feel sorry for the people that would have seen us in the first few weeks. <laughs> I always felt like the momentum is so hard to capture, and so I really want to write it as much as I could. But I want to rewind a little bit, because for people who a lot of us take it for granted now that you can make an iPhone memo, and you can text it to somebody, or you can record a demo in your bedroom, oh, yeah. and you can Dropbox it to somebody, that back then we were having to pass around cassettes and things like that, or use yeah. four tracks to record all the layers and put this shit together, you know? It's crazy to see how, how far all that has come. I work in a restaurant and I work with a lot of, uh, you know, 18 to 25 year olds. And often when I'm trying to talk about Berserk and give it any context, it's hard for me to explain the context of the times because I'm talking to people who grew up with such a vastly different world as far as the means to record. Yeah. Or even just, uh, uh, I think I mentioned this to you, even just like, They'll say, oh, I'll look you up. And I'm like, uh, you might not find us. If you look up Berserk, you find that Eminem song that is spelled the same as our band name. <laughs> I found a lot of anime. Yeah, I mean, you, you were oh, yeah. right, though. And, and when you said that there's really, just because of the time in which you existed was so early internet, you know, we had like Angel Fire and Tripod websites for our bands at that time. We had Live Journal and things like that prior to social media. But... Part of the reason this was interesting to me was that, like, wow, has this band really never been properly documented on, on the internet? And for someone who was influential to me, I think that's that's cool we get to do that now. Man, it's cool to hear you say that we're influential. Uh, 
actually just check this out. Uh, I thought you might think this was cool. This is Rats on the Wall. Uh, Brad from F minus. I just met him the other day for the first time. I, yeah, that's what that's what made me go digging for this. I found this like five minutes before we 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 hopped on here. But dude, they cover a Berserk song. I don't know if you can see that. Oh really? Uh, it's yeah. They covered Traitor. That's awesome. Um, he wrote me like ten years ago on Facebook randomly and said, "Hey, I'm putting a band together and could we cover this song?" Like, fuck yeah, dude. Please just like let me know when it's out. Yeah. Stuff like that will happen to me occasionally where I go, man, we did have, you know, a mark in the punk rock and, and hardcore scene. And but you're right, it's totally not uh, documented well on the internet. I'll, I'll look up shows sometimes that we played specifically and I'll find a review. Or if you attach recess records to Berserk, then you can find you know our, our, our albums or find a maybe link to our old MySpace page or something. But A Discogs link or an eBay link or something like that. But yeah, there's really not a hell of a lot out there. You mentioned getting to open for AFI, for example. Um, you know, only a year after your first record, you dropped the EP, The Silence Kills, and it seems like you guys had momentum because you're playing with AFI, Death by Stereo, all these great bands. Did you feel like something special was happening at the time with that momentum? Oh, man. I think back to those times with like the utmost fondness because when you're going through that, you can literally feel it in everything you do, <clears throat> that momentum. Um, yeah, I, don't, I honestly, we were, in my opinion, never that tight of a band, but I think we had a charm. Um, I think we enjoyed what we were doing so much that people gravitated towards that. Joanne was a pretty charismatic front person as well. But yeah, yeah, man, um, Mike Thrasher in Portland helped us out a lot. He, it was like, a, it almost seemed like anybody that came through town, like every other time, he would just call us. Yeah. <laughs> so we were kind of lucky in that sense. Uh, like you mentioned, Good Riddance earlier, we played with them. AFI, we first played with in, in Salem in like 1997. And uh, Davey and I hit it off talking about acne. <laughs> that night um, about how hard it is to play shows and you know have a little bit of acne and like how to try to deal with your with the, <laughs> with having bad skin and and being sweaty and uh then to my shock when they came into portland like half a year later they asked about us and we want to have berserk on the show that's so cool that floored me because they were on that tape that i was given the first night i was introduced to punk rock afi was one of the bands wow they were different man early on like I got to play with a lot of my favorite bands back then. It was like a dream come true one after another. But those dudes, even like you said earlier, before being famous AFI, they were at a different level yeah. of a live show, man. I went back recently and, and watched not the Portland show, but some footage from the tour that we first played with them on, which would have been uh, after Answer That and Stay Fashionable, but before Very Proud of You. Yeah. And they were just so damn good live. He's got to be the most charismatic human being i've ever met <laughs> yeah man I, I still hold those shows because i saw them that show with you guys and then a year later they had himsa distillers and afi and and those shows back to back of black sales and all hollows were some of the best shows to this day that i've ever seen because you get like 600 people crammed in a 500 capacity room and they are just fervent fans who are singing louder than the PA and watching <laughs> Davey. And again, this is not a, a big established band yet, but watching Davey Christ walk into the crowd and yeah. they just hold him and he just puts his arms out as far as they can reach and just stands there while the fucking band builds up the tension behind him. Like I've never seen anything like that since, you know? No, man, they, they did it right. I learned a lot. There was a stretch where we played with them, I think almost every time they came through Portland, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And man, we, we took so much from their live show. Yeah. As early as the Answer That and the Very Proud of You tours, they were like stringing songs together. Yeah. You know, they ended with the same chord. Uh, one, two, three, four songs in a row. No let up. Pure momentum, pure energy, like not letting it die down, not trailing off or tuning or like at the wrong times, but like at planned times. Yep. And uh, when we would get together before going on the road or something, I was constantly saying things like, uh, maybe we could do this kind of like AFI does. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we need an intro like AFI had. Maybe we could string our songs together like AFI did. I think the second time I saw you was with them at the Crystal and a 
brand new band that nobody had really heard of that was getting some buzz, produced by our thrice. friend Paul Miner. Yes, Thrice. And I was blown away by them because I was like, oh, these guys sound kind of like our friends from Eugene, Dead Even, if they listen to a bunch of Master of Puppets or something, you know? Like, I thought, wow, like, this is really cool. It's kind of blending these these two sounds that I didn't really think would go together. What do you remember about seeing them for the first time? Oh, man, Thrice were, always have been amazing. I think we played their first ever out-of-town show. Really? Um, I could definitely be corrected on that if I'm wrong, but I, in my memory, we were on tour with a band called Toys That Kill uh, from Recess Records. Mm-hmm some label mates of ours. We played at Skate Street in Ventura, California, like famous from the Tony Hawk game. Mm-hmm. Thrice were there and they had better equipment than everybody and were <laughs> tighter than everybody. And I'm pretty sure I remember them saying it was their first show. Wow. I remember we like, you know, back in the day, you'd always check the thank you lists. Uh, yeah. Bands thank you lists, see who they thank and stuff. And I think we made it into their first couple thank you lists based on like playing that show and then a couple, maybe two or three times that we played with them and AFI together. But that's awesome. That sort of stuff, you know, helps spread your name when you're, when you're trying to come up in that world <laughs> for sure. You were talking uh, about being tight with Thrasher and getting to open a lot of those shows for yeah. anyone who doesn't know Mike Thrasher was the, and remains right. I believe a major, major promoter in Portland. And I wondered, did you guys wind up playing a lot with 800 octane? Cause they were also on a ton of those shows. Did you know Mike Thrasher passed away? This past year? No, I did not. Oh, yeah. That hit Portland pretty heavily because wow. he was a huge one. He was a big just punk rocker himself. Yeah. But yeah, he did a lot for the Portland scene. There was a stretch, um, to get back to your question about 800 Octane, where we were playing with them in like 33. Yeah. Um, but we sort of existed in like slightly different scenes and times. Back then, we didn't all go together. It would just be like you would kind of play with like-minded bands more than... yeah like sounding bands that is true well and i mentioned that earlier like existing in in multiple scenes like we opened for earth crisis and sounded nothing like them or we would play with anti-flag and we really didn't sound much like them or we play with bikini kill also didn't sound like them yeah i I always felt like i've heard you mention this on on a few of the podcasts you've done about dfs not quite fitting on a lot of the bills that you play yeah we did a couple tours where it seemed like the promoters didn't quite know who to put us with because no one else was that fast and and aggressive you know or even back to this day's end when we're using a lot of different influences and making kind of trying to make our own thing that we would wind up on punk shows or hardcore shows or pop punk shows and you know it just kind of well i mean we all know these guys right they can fit (laughs) you end up on some some strange shows on tour that way yeah when you're trying to connect some dots and and you, and someone doesn't quite know who to put you with, or maybe they don't even have a band remotely like you in their town. Uh, the first U.S. tour that we did, we had a lot of help, or maybe even was booked for us by Todd from Recess Records. But then I, I shook a lot of hands on that, wrote a lot of contacts down. And when I finally booked my own U.S. tour, one of the shows was in uh, Billings, Montana. Mm-hmm. And the guys wrote to us and said, hey, we'd love to have you here. You know, I'll put together a punk show. We show up and there is no punk show, is, was his words. Sorry, the punk show got canceled, but we got you on a metal show. Okay, well, we kind of sure. you know, listen to Slayer. <laughs> we had just got back from uh, doing a week with uh, Death by Stereo, who, who exists sort of in the, the metal world. Yeah. Yeah, we can. Perfect, you know? Well, his description of metal was something different than, than uh, <laughs> I could have imagined. It was basically a biker rally uh, oh. 30 miles outside of the city. Um, <laughs> Full of bands that, like, to me, looked like they were existing in a different decade than we were currently yeah. in. The first band started off with, I am smelling like a rose that somebody gave me. Whatever that song is. <laughs> and, and proceeded to do, like, ten metal covers. Uh, metal covers, I say in air quotes. Yeah. But uh, we played to, like, four or five, like, teenagers while, like, bikers angrily stared at us from 100 yards away, <laughs> it felt like. <laughs> um, we actually ended up bailing out of there without getting paid because there was a stabbing oh god something as soon as it got dark and people became more intoxicated it got like sort of violent feeling and we just we just left yeah (laughs) and uh existing on the type of money that we were getting paid back then you know we needed that money whatever we would have gotten paid but we just chose to to leave without it that night so 
We were talking about kind of the era in which we came up. Now, you had some connections, right? Some things on your resume in terms of bands you were playing with and, and you know, recess records and things like that. But for anybody who is doing it now, you know how hard it can be to book a tour with all the technology we have available today. What was that like for you guys booking your first tours? I mean, I know you had been in Maximum Rock and Roll and certain things and people had, I guess, an awareness of you in some places, but I mean, how hard was that to get off the ground? Difficult at times. I would find it would be really easy in places we had played before or that like Recess Records had some connections, but filling in the holes often was just a lot of, uh... did you ever have Booked Your Own Fucking Life, the magazine? No, but I'm aware of it. I, I, I had one of those. It was just, I think, a, a nationwide magazine, basically people advertising uh, that the venues they had or you'll come play at my house and it's like a, it would give you a phone number. And it's a, like a punk rock phone book. Totally a punk rock phone book, a punk rock yellow pages. Book your own fucking life. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's still around or probably wouldn't need to exist nowadays. But I had one of those. I would go that route. I've just asked people in other bands. I remember having a just a notebook and a map and trying to draw lines and figure <laughs> yeah. out distances. And I remember planning for, for months and thinking I had it together and still ran into problems, you know, still running to show up somewhere that doesn't have a PA or I thought you guys brought the PA. <laughs> <laughs> nope. We're just in a van with no room for a PA. How far did you guys end up traveling when you would headline your own tours? As far as New York and Florida, I, we did. Uh, wow. Often it was a, a mixture of headlining and opening for other bands and, mm -hmm. or, or, or I would book a tour around something that came up. Um, if we had a couple of really cool opportunities in like LA or, phoenix or something like oh well that kind of looks like the beginning of a tour and if it happened to be during summer we'll just piece it together and make something out of it we did a lot of west coast stuff yeah because it was easier with the girls being in the band to be gone for a shorter amount of time i think we only did three full trips around the u.s how about you have you you know with full u.s tours with all the touring i've done i haven't made it to the east coast i think the farthest i've been is like you know, Chicago, St. Louis, that sort of is the, the line there, Kansas City, you know, like... Did you ever play Fireside Bowl in Chicago by chance? No, I haven't. A converted bowling alley turned punk rock club. I don't, I don't know how nice. long it was around, but it's yeah, pretty awesome. Most of my touring have been West Coast, Midwest, or Southwest, you know, like many trips out to Minnesota, Minnesota, because that's where my label is based, Crush Kill Recordings. We've had a lot of love down in like Phoenix, Albuquerque, that area, you yeah. know, but never hit with any frequency too much on the East. You could probably argue that maybe we shouldn't have made it as far as the East Coast uh, because it made for some pretty long drives, but I think I just sort of decided we're going to New York, you know, we're going to Florida. <laughs> made it happen. I remember uh, having a full U.S. tour lined up with Recess Records. It was called the Recess Vargas Tour. It was going to be like the Dwarves, FYP, Quincy Punks, ourselves, a couple other bands. And we had like 10 days prior to that, we had two dates with AFI, which ends up also being a Death by Stereo's first tour. Those dates were supposed to be AFI, Death by Stereo, 88 Fingers of Louie, and Berserk opening just the Portland and Seattle dates. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, so like prior to Rise Against, a lot of those guys were in a band called 88 Fingers Louie. You were supposed to go out with the, with them for a couple spot dates, right? Yes. Just Portland and Seattle. And the story that's about to unfold is sort of indicative of how, how I did a lot of things uh, back in the day. I don't know if I've even told this to my bandmates, uh, so <laughs> they may be hearing it for the first time. Some point during the night of the Portland show, uh, after like meeting the Death by Stereo dudes and immediately hitting it off, that's a whole other story. Those guys, some of my favorite human beings in the world. And I've listened to your podcast with Paul. It's awesome. And Mike, who I actually don't know, I, I don't know that incarnation of Death by Stereo personally. Yeah. You know, the, uh, or some of the earlier lineups, Jim Minor and so forth. Anyways, that night, somebody said, 88 Fingers Louis broke up. They're not going to make it. And uh, sure enough, they did not. And in my mind, instantly, I was kind of, you know thinking how many dates till we have to start this recess Vargas tour. Yeah. I just sort of decided that like we were going to take 88 fingers Louis spot without 
consulting anybody. <laughs> um, it's, at some point in the night, I asked Davey from AFI if, if it were okay with him if I contacted whoever I needed to contact uh, about possibly taking over in the short term those spots. Yeah. He said, sure, that'd be great. But uh, I think it was Tara at Leave Home Booking is who I'd have to talk to. At that point, I think I told my bandmates, hey, guys, clear your schedules. We are going on tour. <laughs> they apply. That was not really yet true. We had a Seattle date the next night. I spent the better part of that day trying to get a hold of Tara and could not. This was, I say pre-cell phone, meaning we didn't have cell phones. I'm sure they existed. but Yeah, but no texting uh, or any of that. Yeah. I had a calling card. I was stopping at pay phones and leaving messages. And uh, with no number to call back at, yeah. I, I really needed to get through. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, we did the Seattle show, came back to Portland, and that was a pretty important spot because Boise was the next date. So we could have stayed home or we could leave for Boise. Uh, I still didn't have a yes, but I had told the rest of Berserk that we're, we're going to Boise for this show. <laughs> and uh, also, by the way, I told my bandmates, I think that the reason that we were stopping for these payphone visits was so that I could like work out the itinerary. But really, we were... 200 miles down I-84 before I spoke to her and got the yes. <laughs> you guys are on tonight. Bogies in Boise, Idaho. I'm like, sweet. That's amazing. <laughs> in two nights, I learned as much of the Death by Stereo album as I could. Listen to it. Uh, if looks could kill, I'd watch you die on repeat, man. Love that um, record. So that I could sing along, you know, in Boise. Yeah. And obviously, I also know all the AFI lyrics because, as we mentioned earlier with watching Davey, you want to know all the lyrics. You want to be up there singing along. So, yeah. Another awesome show in Boise that night. And uh, at some point, pretty much the same thing unfolded, but with uh, more authenticity, with more of a chance of it actually happening. I said, hey, can we also do tomorrow? Where's tomorrow? We ended up doing Salt Lake City, much in the same fashion, Denver, and then got an invitation to go to Detroit. But it was like looking at a map, looking at how many days so we had to be at the Recess Records yeah. on first date and just could not do it. I really wished that I had like one more week off and could have made both those things happen. But, uh, that's awesome. I mean, that, though. that tour was crazy because they had like a, a writer, like I'd never seen, man, like vegan spread, vegan burritos, <laughs> us and death by stereo were, I think with permission, uh, munching on their, <laughs> their snacks. Yeah. <laughs> as often as we could. Well, and it's funny to think about because I probably knew of death by stereo a little bit after the first, first record but it was i mean that was around when i got into them and you know they're on punkarama comps and have this epitaph affiliation you know before the second record drops and so to me they're like wow these guys are huge like bad religion right but yeah. no really they kind of started at the same time as a lot of us and we're just out there working it i had not heard of them but that was another case where i was just blown away by a band live yeah these guys are shredding like iron maiden the drummer at the time was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I'd never answered your four-piece question about Berserk way earlier, but oh yeah, we often were a five-piece because I played pretty sloppily live, liked to jump around a lot, and often my chord would come out, and you know, so it, we were tighter as a five-piece and enlisted help along the way several times. One of those times was with a guy from the Midwest who was a like classically trained drummer, but he was playing guitar in Berserk for a short while, and he was in the band for those death by stereo shows. And he was just like blown the fuck away by, uh, I think it was Sid who was drumming and on the, if looks could kill, I'd watch you die record. They've had a lot um, of drummers and each one of them a shredder. So I, I couldn't tell you specifically, but yeah, I think that dude quit death by stereo to go back to drum school. If I recall, which I thought was just insane because he was to me, the best drummer I'd ever seen at that time. What? But, uh, yeah, man, those days, are very nostalgic for me. The whole era of music and the things we got to do back then. I'm trying to find footage of, I can't remember if it was a house or if it was like a co-op of some kind. I want to say Countdown to Life. You oh, yeah. Played. The Lorax, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lorax. Yeah, I remember... Somewhere I have footage of that. I would love to see that because that show was rad, not only just because we're playing with you guys, we're playing with Countdown, two bands that we love, and we played a ton with Countdown and a little bit with you guys. And I can still picture you because we're playing basically in an emptied out living room, you know, where they would do shows. Yeah. And I can picture you running up the wall to do jumps like 
Catwoman in the new Batman movie. (laughs) And because those places were like on campus and they're sort of like adjacent to frats and stuff like that, there were like paps cans lining all the windowsills and all this shit. And so we were having an all ages show but the cops came because of the noise and they saw all the okay. beer cans. And when we were playing, they shut the show down and they wouldn't. <laughs> I so, remember that. Now. So, yeah. So they take everyone outside on the lawn or whatever. I am just trying to get our gear from inside and they won't let yeah. us back in the building. They're like, no, everyone get out of here or whatever. I'm like, it's my fucking show. I've got $10,000 worth of equipment in that room. I'm not going to leave it here. Like, I need to take our shit home. Yeah. And they wouldn't let us back in because they are they had this whole thing about that we're, you know, facilitating underage drinking and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, dude, if you knew anything about who you were saying this to, that would be hilarious, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm in a straight-edge band. Like, come on. Like, please. Um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I just, these are my Pabst cans. That is my equipment. Like, yeah, that's, I have nothing to do with these people who fucking live here. This is a show that's separate from that, but they, they just saw the cans and went wild. Dude, on that recess Vargas tour that I mentioned earlier, this is probably like 1999 or 2000. We had a date in West Palm beach, Florida leading up to it. We had heard, Hey man, anti-flag just got jumped at that same club. Wow. They got jumped by skinheads and for having an upside down American flag or something, which, you know, yeah. that's their aesthetic. I was a little nervous about that because I, I worry about everything. Also nervous because the band that was headlining that tour, FYP, uh, who the some of the members are now in a band that I love called Toys That Kill, who's on Recess Records. Mm-hmm. They had a song about a guy named Ian Stewart, who was the singer, I believe, of a skinhead band in like the 80s named screwdriver i want to say oh yeah he passed away i believe and the context of the song was like ian stewart as a crash test dummy didn't end racism that's like the chorus berserk actually used to cover that song and i don't know too much about it but i know that it's got to be the reason that what happened that night happened all i know is from reputation that that band is one of the more well-known nazi bands so the fyp had a song talking shit about that guy when we arrived at the venue I immediately noted that most of the people I saw there were skinheads. I, oh. I never too quick to know racist from not racist. I know there's a whole scene there. I don't know too much about it. Yeah. I just noticed an alarming amount of skinheads for a punk show. Also like promoter was, uh, the bartender was. Long story short, we played an FYP who is the headliner, you know, probably 12 to 14 songs or something they're going to play. Most people are there to see them. I want to say they played like a song and a half before the room filled with skinheads whoa the fyp dudes are like you know five nine five ten nice guys not really fighters we were a couple of guys about the same size and a couple of girls in berserk yeah not much of a a brawling uh bunch a song and a half in somebody's up on the stage saying the last song todd's like what What? singer of fyp what and within 30 seconds it was just all out mayhem it was like a scene out of a, a bad cartoon with beer mugs getting broken on heads. And wow. I remember being outside at one point on one side of a car across the guy that looked like he wanted to kill me, across from a guy that looks like he wanted to kill me, circling around, just trying not to make contact with this guy. And I ended up uh, running down the street and hiding somewhere. We weren't allowed back in the venue by the people that ran it. Had to end up getting a police escort like hours later back into the venue to get our gear. Wow. Some of which was missing. And also, the f- entire footage on VHS from that tour that had been documented up to that point also missing. Oh, which is kind of a huge bummer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you started talking about uh, not being able to get back in to get your gear, that's what it reminded me of. I, I don't think about that night very often, but when I do, I can recall with some real clarity some of those details. I'm glad that in Eugene we didn't have much of that popping up around here because I know a lot of scenes were pervaded by that. Yeah, I think when it comes to confronting skinheads live, the all-time kings have to be propagandi. I have seen some footage from like a, 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 the Gilman. Yeah. So a friend of mine in like 1996 drove down and filmed a show down there. And Chris was just almost Ian McKay-like about like setting the tone at his own shows and saying like, this is what's going to go and this is what's not, you know? It should be a well-known fact by now that we're not fans of pits and macho fucking violence. And if I... 
And if I watch this shit getting out of hand, I swear, I'm warning right now. I'll walk right out there and I'll shit right in the middle of it. You have to fucking deal with it. You think you like that now, but fucking wait till you get your feet in it. To probably the detriment of the show, he would completely stop things and address whatever was happening. Man, I haven't seen that footage in 25 years, so I, I can't recall too many details about it other than just him being like so appropriately confrontational yeah. that it was in inspirational to me. That was one of the reasons that we broke up, I think, at the end of 2005. It was like there were bullshit fights at shows over and over, and like, you know, we'd we'd carved out our place, you know, like, so I first see you guys in AFI at the WoW Hall in eighth grade. Well, by then we were headlining that room and throwing our own shows. And it was great, you know, but we're having to stop mid song. And Chris, our bass player would take his strap off his shoulder, throw his bass on the ground and jump into the crowd and like, get this guy the fuck out of here or we're not going to play another song, you know, and shit like that kept happening until I was like, I'm, gonna go make an acoustic record this fucking blows and less than a year later me and chris started dfs instead but it was just like the heavier it got the more aggro it got in the crowd and not in a you know like we were around the same bands like you go see brutal fight or dead unknown or some of these great northwest hardcore bands like you would see hardcore dancing in a harmonious way like a really fucking it looked like it was choreographed it was so well done like everyone going wild and doing their crazy kicks and shit but no one's getting hurt it's all respect it's all positivity we played with bane and champion up there we played with sick of it all and like they were always the bands that were really about it were doing it out of love for the music and the people who just wanted to fuck shit up were ruining it after a while you know yeah, man, I, I got into those scenes, the punk and hardcore scenes, to avoid dudes like that. Yeah. When they started showing up at shows was sort of when I felt like it, uh, maybe the scene had jumped the shark at the time, and uh, I no longer wanted to be that much a part of it. Never wanted to get my head kicked in, and especially now that we're uh, getting a little up there in age, I'm yeah. not at all interested in getting my head kicked in. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really nice when you're able to uh, enjoy a show from a, from a safe comfortable advantage that's probably the least punk rock thing i could say (laughs) no i'm with you man like for the most part i have always been the guy leaning on the front row and i've had people tell me like oh i thought you didn't like us or or like tell my like listening face is intimidating or whatever because i'll i will be the dude in the front row with my arms crossed right because i'm like looking at how the amp is dialed in how we get it to sound like that and i'm and i'm watching the drummer's technique with his pedal and you know like i'm, I'm really just trying to take it all in and i'm not the guy that wants to fucking run around and break shit i'm the guy that'll give you the elbow in the fucking ribs if you're smashing me while i'm trying to watch the bass player you know like I want to be up there in it, but I don't want all the bullshit, you know? Dude, and and, and being there, uh, especially back in the day, in the the times that we're talking about, that was how you learned what amps and guitars you wanted to have because you couldn't find them on the internet so readily. So you'd have to say, oh my God, these guys sounded great and they were playing through that and that's what I got to save up my money and get. No joke, man. I really, really, really wanted to meet Greg Hetson the other night. I, I waited outside after the Circle Jerks show to see if if he would come out. Because Mike, he was on the tour in the adolescence, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I think they'll be coming out in a bit, right? Never saw him. Him and Keith, I think, vanished out at another door. But but I wanted to tell him because also in the year 2000, I saw Bad Religion for the first time, and they opened with the song Don't Sell Me Short, right? And so Mm -hmm. the first thing that happens is Hetson walks out and plays the G power chord and starts going into that riff just by itself. And my Mm -hmm. eighth grade mind exploded, right? And I was like, (laughs) oh my God. And so after that, I had like a stack of musicians friend catalogs and I'm going through all the, the SGs. I'm trying to find one that looks just like his, but I can also afford it, you know? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I remember getting that and dialing it in on my amp next to the CD to try to get it to sound like him. And, you know, 22 years later, I still play SGs. <laughs> that, you know, it was all from that little moment of being yeah. there and seeing that in person and, and that impact that it can have, you know? I'd love to hear your acoustic stuff, man. I, I haven't delved into that. Yeah, I, I just dropped a out. recent one, a covers record called Stolen Songs for everything from 
you know, the Dixie Chicks to the Interrupters, you know, the Boss Tones, <laughs> whatever. Like, oh, wow. it's all over the place, but done in acoustic songs. I'll have to send it to you. But we were talking about propaganda. You said there was a, an interaction you guys had with oh, propaganda. Yeah. Did you know that Propagandi's early releases were on Recess Records? No. I've got it right here, though. I don't know Holy you, shit. I don't, have, I don't have the cover, but this is Propagandi I Spy Split 10-inch. Wow. Um, yeah, so I've also dug this up. I used to show this to people, Berserk, like two spots away from Propagandi on the... Oh, yeah, the yeah. But this is a, a Recess Records sampler, and I used this sampler to write to the band way before we actually ended up playing with them. I wrote and said, hey, we're a Recess Records band. In my memory, they just weren't touring a lot when I sent the email. So some time passed, but I, I just wrote whatever contact I could find. And hey, if you guys ever come to Portland, we play a lot. We'd you know, be like, awesome if we could open for you guys. Years later, Berserk had just broken up, third or fourth time, but we were definitely not playing shows. And I got the email like, all right, here's the dates. Uh, sorry to took so long to get back to you, but we're coming and we'd love to have you guys wow. on the show. I was a little less than forthcoming with Mike Thrasher. Uh, at the time, I kind of just said Berserk would love to do it. I kind of knew we probably wouldn't be doing the show. <laughs> but I, did, I, just, <laughs> I just could not say no because for me, that's my favorite band, uh, always have been. Prop Propaganda, uh, they shaped me politically in ways that no other band has. Yeah. Um, you know, as a teenager, they kind of pointed me in some directions that I, I wasn't otherwise pointed. Changed me for the better. Just fucking love that band. So I just said yes. Like, uh, uh, you know, just immediate. I, I just sent it yes. Then I had to, like, live with either not playing the show or, like, making something happen. I waited and waited and waited, and the show started getting to the point of being promoted. It was Portland and Seattle that we got offered. I had basically, for three or four weeks been jamming songs with a couple of the Berserk guys that were like more in the pop punk vein, sort of like a Dillinger 4-esque Toys That Kill mm -hmm. type songs. I don't even think we had a name yet, but we like came up with the name, called it The Medics and said, wrote the band, wrote Thrasher, wrote whoever was the promoter in Seattle at the time and just said, I'm so sorry, Berserk actually cannot do this show, but we uh, have a band called The Medics and we can take the spot. We're three quarters of the same band. <laughs> yeah. Just with no label and no following whatsoever. So we really shouldn't have been on. We didn't quite deserve to be on those shows. I can't say I feel bad because it might have been the coolest two shows I ever played on. But yeah, my band, The Medics, ended up, I think we had five songs, ended up opening those shows. And it, that was like the <laughs> Potemkin tour, I want to say. Potemkin wow. City Limits. That's great, man. Yeah, I think that in hearing more of these stories from you, this explains why, I mean, we've known each other a long time, but at a, as acquaintances, you know, I think we more follow e each other's work than really know each other. But like, yeah. <laughs> just hearing how for guys like me, playing those shows and meeting those artists that meant something to me is the most significant thing. And so people have called me an opportunist or whatever, but like, I <laughs> see those moments as once-in-a-lifetime experiences and memories, right? I value that more than anything, right? Like, it's why I can oh, write yeah. a book about my life, and people are like, how do you remember all this shit? I'm like, because all of those shows and all of those records and all of those collaborations or whatever, like, those are ingrained in my DNA. Like, I couldn't tell you about... Uh, birthday party or a family vacation or I couldn't tell you those things but I can tell you every single record every single show because those things oh, yeah. are why I live you know that I completely understand the only thing that I guess I could say has changed that for me is having kids yeah and so now my focus has shifted to that and a lot of the meaning of my life now I, I place there but as far as the early part of my life it was all about that, man. And uh, it's a small world, but it's an even smaller world, I feel like, in, in like the punk and hardcore communities. Yeah. Just looking at some of the threads that we share, Countdown, Death by Stereo, like some of the venues and, and bands. Yeah. The friends you make, those are like my favorite places, my favorite people in the universe. Uh, for me, like the, also the Toys That Kill and the, the Recess Records crew, everybody that I've played with in Berserk, like those are just like my best friends. Yeah. You know? 
And some of them you still know to this day. I mean, like, I'm pretty sure my straight edge band Outreach played our our last show or second to last show with you guys at one of Nate Allen's Roseburg shows because he would promote for all of us oh, down yeah. there. So many little connections. And these are people that I've now known for 20 years or something. And we're all kind of out there doing our own projects still. And that's inspiring to me because a lot of times I feel like I'm the only guy left from the old scene, you know, like I go out to a show. I'm the old dude. I don't know who any of these fucking bands are. You know, <laughs> Dead Fucking Series has existed for long enough, but it's not yeah. like we're part of the community or anything. And so I feel a lot of times like I'm just out to see. But knowing all of you guys and seeing you still dropping shit like that, it's so cool to me that, you know, Nate lives in Kansas City and is still touring and making cool records. And you were showing me Preach Around. And, you know, it's like if... Tony Iommi wrote punk rock songs or something, you know, you're showing me General Electric, you know, which I watched the Bridge City Sessions and it's great to me. Like, yeah, there's a uh, Mandy from Berserk is also in General Electric. And that just sort of came about because for years of, of not doing live music, I had a bunch of acoustic songs and she was like, hey, we should plug in some amps and make this a band. And so we all sort of had the time to do it. And we haven't toured or anything or even attempted to but mandy i'd be remiss if i didn't mention has an awesome record label called uh, nadine records and she has uh, subsequently released a uh, my acoustic cd that was her first release it was just a compilation of a bunch of random stuff that i've recorded that she slapped together and made an album out of but uh she works at a, a vinyl pressing plant oh nice Cascade here in portland and uh, so she's able to get some dope ass looking records made I think at a, maybe a slight discount and she started a label and puts out bands. She loves a lot, like a lot of the fame, you know, uh, Discord or recess. A lot of the, my favorite record labels are just people that put out records by friends, bands. Yeah. I love that you point that out. I'm going to have to go watch those videos again because I remember going, Oh, this rhythm section is great. Like I really like it. And I didn't even, because it's been so many years, I think you and I have kept in touch a little bit, but I didn't even recognize her. So I'm gonna have to rewatch it now. So what did happen to Berserk? Like, was there a breakup or was it just sort of fizzle out over time as everyone's spread um, out? I've never actually said this publicly, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about it in this last two weeks. And I talked to my wife about it and decided it was a good idea to be upfront about it. Basically, I started getting into uh, like opiate pills. I was working in tattoo shops you know, with friends because it enabled me to like go on the road and not have a serious job. I could just uh, work for cash. And yeah. uh, that, that led into like worse things. And uh, I had about three really dark years with that stuff, man. About as dark as like life could get. Yeah. My bandmates in Berserk obviously didn't support it. And so it fizzled out for that reason. Around what years are we talking here? What period uh, this is, is this? like 2003, 2004 would have probably been the end at that point. Okay. We have since done one reunion show four or five years ago here in Portland. Uh, we reunited. There's a comedian, Gabe Dinger, who uh, grew up in my neighborhood, who was moving from Portland to L.A. Yeah. He was having this big, like, goodbye bash. And I guess we were one of his inspirations as a teenager. He's like, oh, if guys from my neighborhood are playing with AFI and playing with Good Riddance and some of his favorite bands, he's like, why can't I open for Bob Saget? Why can't I open for... <laughs> Sort of like he drew this parallel between us and himself. We basically were his house band. Nice. And it effectively became like a Berserk reunion show. It was awesome, man. Uh, it kind of brought everything full circle for me. Uh, I've been clean for almost 15 years. Awesome, man. Congrats. And uh, it seems like a different life. It seems like somebody else's story I'm telling when I think of that that stretch of getting into that stuff. But uh, that was sort of sadly what, what it probably would have fizzled out on its own anyway. Joanne was becoming a teacher. I think we're all kind of getting into different music, but yeah. that definitely drove the nail in the coffin. I mean, I, I mentioned that I am straight edge, but the reason I'm straight edge, like a lot of other people, is just because of other people in my family had gone down those paths already. And so I had already kind of seen and known that stuff. And so <laughs> I don't want you to feel like, oh, this guy's judging the shit out of me. Because I, I, I think it's awesome that you were 
able to bounce back from that and start a family, keep making music and, and do everything that you're doing, man. So, so congrats. Thank you, man. I think one of the main reasons I wanted to mention it is just thinking like, probably not, but Hey, maybe somebody hears this who has a sibling who's going through it. Maybe someone hears it who's going through it themselves. And you know, when you're in that world, you hear a lot of like a doom and gloom and like nobody gets out type of a uh, stories. And, yeah. uh, mine is completely different, completely turned my life around. I couldn't be happier couldn't feel more uh, at peace with everything. All right, that is our show. Huge thanks to Tyler for coming on. It was a real treat to get to catch up with him after so many years, and I hope we get to share the stage again soon. Now, the next episode is a big one. It's 100. Okay, so for episode 100, I have a special guest, Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC. That's right, the king of rock himself. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to leave you with a track from Berserk. This is a deep cut from the vault. This is not the life I ordered. Thank you.